Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze the music, legacy, and cultural impact of all your favorite pop stars. I'm your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'm a DJ, writer, and all-around pop music fanatic. I've spent my entire life and career thinking about, dissecting, and being obsessed with pop stars. Their music, their legacies, how they relate to one another, to the larger pop musical landscape, and to culture more broadly. What separates an icon from a mere superstar? Why do some careers become the soundtrack to our lives, and why do others flop? Whose work and legacy transcends time, and whose feels stuck in it? Every episode of Pop Pantheon, we'll devote an entire episode to a pop icon. From titans of the genre like Beyonce and all the way down to uh, lesser titans like Nicole Scherzinger. Each episode, you'll hear a little breakdown from me and then some distinguished guests and I will chop it up about their careers, discographies, public personas, live performances, music videos, feuds, tweets, you name it. And at the end, we'll turn pop into fantasy football, make our final judgment, and place them in the official pop pantheon. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Pop Pantheon. This, of course, is DJ Louie once again. Thank you for joining me. As always, always so thrilled to have you here back again, listening to another episode of this podcast. I want to extend a huge shout out to everybody that came out in the last couple of weeks to my shows with Who Weekly in Brooklyn, in LA. I got to meet so many people that were fans of the podcast. It was so touching, so amazing. Also, we had the best time at those parties. Oh my God, what a trip. Thank you guys so much for coming to that. And um, I hope to do more of it. Again, I know I talked about the Pop Pantheon party I want to put together. That is still in the works, you know pandemic and all things got thrown off but i am planning to still make that happen for everybody and uh stay tuned on that one so i'm just gonna keep it real short here make sure you come by the discord chat later we're gonna talk about this episode we're gonna talk about pop at 8 p.m 5 p.m pacific discord link will be in the show notes of this episode email any questions you have for me about pop about this artist, about other artists, about, uh, I don't know, anything you're curious about that you think I might have the answer to, dating questions to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Actually, don't ask me dating questions. I don't know shit about it. Uh, Last thing is, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, review Pop Pantheon on Apple Podcasts, and help me get up in the ratings, help the podcast get in front of more people. So many of you have done it. I so appreciate it. And I cherish each and every rating and review as if it were my own child. So thank you. Of course, if you're new and you want to get some background on what we do over here at Pop Pantheon, there's a mini-sode in this feed called What Exactly is the Pop Pantheon that explains some stuff about it, just some basic concepts. But other than that, let's just get into it. This is an episode I know people have been waiting for. I've been waiting for it. I'm so excited and to have gotten to do this episode with two of my podcasting idols, the great Charlie Harding and Nate Sloan of Switched on Pop. Well, this episode is one for the books. So here it is, Pop Pantheon for the number one angel herself, Charlie XCX. Let's ride Let's ride Let's ride Let's ride Charlie XCX seems to lead a double life. 
Half of her discography, especially on the features and the myriad of smashes she's written for other artists, represents some of the most indelible, straight-down-the-middle pleasure bombs of recent pop history, like I Love It and Fancy and Boom Clap. And yet, on the flip side, and on the majority of her own discography, we find one of modern pop's greatest antagonists, hell-bent on setting trends or trying her darndest to bring the rest of pop into her idiosyncratic worldview, often at the expense of the commercial success she could easily have and perhaps might even desire. This internal conflict between being one of pure pop's greatest practitioners and its signature iconoclasts has defined Charlie's career and made her one of the most fascinating and inscrutable figures in contemporary pop. Bitches know they can't catch me. Cute, sexy, and my ride sporty. Those slugs know they can't catch me. So let's ride. After first making her name on MySpace in the late aughts and early 2010s, Charlie's debut album, True Romance, arrived in 2013 as part of a wave of alternative pop albums with one foot in the sound of indie music of the last decade and another in the pure pop of the radio. While the album was a critical darling, its ethereal, just left of center electro pop singles made nary a dent on the charts. A song Charlie wrote and was featured on, though, Iconopop's I Love It, went on to become one of the biggest hits of the summer of 2013, establishing a long-standing dichotomy in Charlie's career, one where she occupied two seemingly oppositional spaces simultaneously, the subversive indie darling and the aspiring megastar. I don't care. True Romance's commercial underperformance and I love its massive success, Charlie regrouped. She scored her first and only solo hit in the United States, Boom Clap, on the soundtrack to the film A Fault in Our Stars, and had her real first major breakthrough into public consciousness as the writer and featured artist on erstwhile rapper Iggy Azalea's number one smash, Fancy. era, Charlie also had major success as a songwriter for other major pop stars, including Selena Gomez's top five hit, Same Old Love. Charlie released her second album, Sucker, in late 2014. Sucker appeared primed to finally make Charlie a bona fide pop megastar in her own right, effectively drawing on I Love It's formula of direct pop punk music with a connection to contemporary EDM shouted, multi-tracked choruses, massive beat drops, and ingeniously simplistic lyrics and hooks, which posited Charlie as the queen of the most irreverent, reckless party that could possibly be contained within the formalism of pop music.
And yet, while it again earned plaudits, Sucker completely stiffed on the charts and seemed to radically shift Charlie's approach once and for all. Starting in 2017, Charlie made a hard pivot away from the sounds of contemporary pop, a seeming abdication of the impulse for a number one hit, and turned her attention more towards her role as pop's leading to center and tastemaker on an ongoing series of collaborations with hyper-pop icons PC Music. Here, on mixtapes like Number One Angel and Pop 2, albums like her self-titled Charlie and How I'm Feeling Now, and songs like Vroom Vroom and Boys, Charlie made some of the most experimental pop of the decade, music that maximally pushed the synthetic possibilities of the genre to the absolute extreme, while never abandoning her knack for an addictive, simple hook. This utter fantasia, which also found Charlie bringing seemingly every other all-pop star of the last decade into her aesthetic orbit, from Carly Rae Jepsen to Lizzo to Pablo Vittar to Kim Petras, represents some of the most celebrated pop music of recent times and has firmly established Charlie, if not as a quote-unquote pop star in the traditional sense that she may have once aspired to, as one of its most vital innovators, gay icons, and cult heroes. Charlie recently released her latest single, Good Ones, a pivot back towards more straightforward radio pop in September, setting up perhaps yet another showdown between Charlie's dueling impulses. Wherever she goes next, she's carved out an utterly singular lane in the often rote, repetitive pop landscape. Charlie XCX has appeared on three top 10 singles and one number one on the US Hot 100. She has six top 10 hits in the UK. She's been nominated for two Grammy Awards and her mixtape Pop 2 was ranked at number 40 on Pitchfork's Greatest Album of the 2010s. Here with me to discuss one of contemporary pop's greatest trailblazers and enigmas are the hosts of the podcast Switched on Pop, Nate Sloan and Charlie Harding. All right, so I'm here with Charlie Harding and Nate Sloan of the fucking amazing <laughs> podcast Switched on Pop. I was telling Charlie yesterday, I have listened to you guys since like day one when the podcast was just a baby. So I'm so honored to have you guys on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. What a joy. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank you. This is exciting. Uh, we don't get to curse on our podcast. So now I'm, I'm pretty excited <laughs> about uh, unleashing a profanity filled uh, tirade at some point. Please, I'm sorry for cursing right off the bat, but also feel free. This will come with an explicit label. No, we love we love the enthusiasm. I'm Nate, by the way. Charlie here. So guys, we're here to talk about uh, an artist that I absolutely adore. And I was I, I my first question for you really is you guys have talked about pretty much every pop star <laughs> or current pop star on your podcast at one point or another. And when we were going back and forth trying to figure out who we should talk about, you guys wanted to talk about Charlie. And I guess my first question for you guys is why Charlie? Why was she the artist that you wanted to talk about on the podcast today? I guess it feels like Charlie XCX has been bubbling under the surface of the most essential pop music for the last decade and seemingly often years ahead of where the direction of pop is heading and for her creativity her energy and her influence I think that she's one of the most important yet always underrated pop stars working today 
I absolutely couldn't agree more. It's, I think she's really fascinating because for many of the reasons that you said, it's like her influence and her omnipresence is sort of like ongoing. And yet I feel like in a way, as you know, I was sort of talking to you guys a little bit off mic, she sort of exists as like a cult figure in the pop universe in a sense. So when was your first like experience with uh, com- encountering her? Like, were you guys sort of fans of her from the beginning or was there a moment where you picked up on her career? So we first became uh, familiar with Charlie XCX through her song Boom Clap, uh, which we which we covered uh, on on the podcast. And I think that was that was interesting for me because it felt like this was an artist who was pushing the envelope, but not hadn't really entered her truly experimental phase yet. So I, I see that song maybe retrospectively as sort of being on the the edge between her her more commercial hits and her more experimental stuff. I think it begins to get at though this underlying talent of hers, which is really playing to the fact that pop music at its core so often really is about style over substance. That we care more about the energy, the enthusiasm, the references, the production, the sort of artifice of the idea of what a pop song can possibly be. And she distills it down into a single absurd idea boom clap like an utterly meaningless but totally energizing statement and i think that kind of nugget that we get from boom clap that we're gonna just lean into style and do everything we can with the language of pop music and twist it and turn it and make you see it in ways you hadn't expected i think we start to see it right from the very beginning even though the song is sort of caked in like a indie pop like it feels almost like kind of in the same world as like fun mm. which had just you know come out a few years before the dna of her work begins right there for me i mean yeah and and i think there is sort of a push and pull between sort of like uh and i think that song encapsulates it well between being both a sort of like uber fan of pop that she is like she's clearly somebody who has great reverence for the art form and respect for the 100%. genre of pop but also exists as an outsider and also pushes at the boundaries of what pop music can be and i feel like in some ways her career bears this out in 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 her discography because there's so much music uh, in there that feels like it's outside of the box stuff that you wouldn't Mm. necessarily think could fit in on a top 40 playlist or on the radio or on like today's hits on Spotify or wherever most pop stars are getting their spins in these in this day and age and yet also on the flip side of her discography are also these like straight down the middle sort of like Mm. genre defining hits of of the last decade and she sort of exists in these two worlds and I sort of sometimes pick up on that as like a conflict within her artistry and in her pop stardom because I think there's a part of her that likes to be the person that's like pushing the conversation forward and then there's this other instinct or intuition that I pick up in her music and I pick this up on a song like Boom Clap or on the Iconopop song where there's a part of her that really likes to just kind of make the most addictive down the middle Mm -hmm. sort of pop song that you can but with the ultimate ultimate finesse of somebody that's a real student of the genre if that makes sense absolutely i think uh it'll be fun in this conversation to to think about how she subverts some of the expectations of pop music not by 
doing the opposite of what you expect a pop song to do, but doing what a pop song does to such an intense degree that it almost turns the the genre inside out. Mm. Like the ultimate maximalism in a sense. Yeah, the hyper the hyper pop of it, like that with hyper mm-hmm. being the operative word there. Yeah, interesting. Although, you know, when she began at what, you know, we were very, very pre-hyper pop, she sort of came up through MySpace. I mean, she, that mm. was where she originally sort of was making music and she got a record deal at 14 years old, oh, which wow. I guess just speaks to her, what a prodigy she's always been in terms mm. of being a music maker. She was she was somebody that had that tenacity and that and desire to be a pop star from like a very, very young age. And obviously like the talent was there. So she came up like making these MySpace mixtapes. They all love you. And that all spun into her debut album in 2013, which was called True Romance, which, you know, is kind of a classic of the indie pop genre of that time period, but was sort of like a critical darling that kind of got zero commercial attention. And, you know, sounds in, I guess in some ways, like there's evidence of sort of the sound that she'll come up with in her more prominent work later on in her career. It's kind of uh, almost like introspective and ethereal in a way that like a lot of her later music is a lot more direct and sort of like streamlined. The album is produced by Ariel Reichshot. And at the time, he was on a big kind of hot streak with these sort of pop acts that were in conversation with the mainstream pop conversation, mm-hmm. but weren't in the center of it. So Vampire Weekend, he produced one of Vampire Weekend's greatest albums called Modern Vampires of the City. And he also produced Haim's debut album, which came out in that same year. And he produced uh, Sky Ferreira's Nighttime My Time, which I feel like is a real corollary to Charlie's first record. Making records that are kind of like at the edge of maybe even the end of 2000s indie world, translating them into mm-hmm. pop world, and it's very it's a very blurry space. It's one that doesn't necessarily yeah. it doesn't feel like it's realized until maybe even like today. Like I feel like the kinds of work that was happening then never totally popped off. There were critically acclaimed mm-hmm. records, but never like started to top the charts. But this sort of band-oriented music that he was producing, that sort of that we hear in that early Charlie XCX record, that that doesn't end up becoming the dominant sound of popular music. It becomes subverted by EDM and trap music. 
Absolutely. It's, you know, it's, and it, and it speaks to this narrative, I think, where in that era, there was a group of pop stars that were in a new way that had never really happened before, were operating almost like indie rock bands. And I find that really interesting because their sound was tied. So like the notion that a Charlie XCX record was sort of like sonically in conversation with a Vampire Weekend record is an interesting thing because in a way, Charlie XCX and I guess just preceding her artists like Robin were creating a universe for artists that were making pure pop music but that weren't necessarily on the charts or like charting as popular artists and Mm. I think it's this interesting uh, sort of siphoning off moment between the notion of pop music as something that inherently has to be the most popular music in the world and pop music that kind of can operate almost like indie music Mm. and so in both the form and style and content of her records and in the way that I think her first album, True Romance, was received, she sort of was like an early adapter of this sort of like new alt-pop mode in a sense. I think it's also worth pointing out that you're still at this point in history in the real doldrums of the music industry. Like, people are still trying to figure out how to milk that ringtone revenue. <laughs> like, streaming <laughs> right. doesn't become the dominant... <laughs> form of revenue for the industry until 2017 and so Mm. i think that we hear that in the music that people are making or like people are just trying to figure it out and what pop is Mm. what like pure pop is Hmm. is a really moving target at that moment it's why in the same sort of time period you get a carly ray jepsen who's doing some form of pure pop We've also got Katy Perry, who is also trying to figure out what that sound is. And they're all, I think, I think, I think a lot of people are reaching and grabbing to figure out what is the sound going to be, uh, and definitely what she was doing. Definitely what Charlie XX was doing on her first record does not end up being the direction of popular music over the next many years. Hmm. It's fascinating, too, talking about Carly, because I think Carly also exists sort of in this alt... Like, call me maybe aside, having the biggest pop hit of all time aside, (laughs) Carly also ultimately kind of ends up operating in this kind of alt-pop space. And also, there's songs on on Carly Rae Jepsen's Emotion, like Making the Most of the Night or Emotion, the title track are coming to mind, that have that Ariel Reichsad sort of sound. Mm -hmm. They sound like high songs they sound mm-hmm. a little bit like nuclear seasons the single from charlie xcx's debut albums She's an interesting figure too, and also I think in relation to Katy Perry, because in uh, that aside, some of Carly Rae Jepsen and Katy Perry's music is very similar. I mean, it's not like they're doing something so extraordinarily different from one another. And to me, one of the more fascinating things about this period, in terms of like who are these sort of like traditional megastar pop 
you know, culturally saturating pop artists and who sort of end up existing as these cult figures, like what differentiates them exactly? You know, if we are going to take the premise that what Carly Rae Jepsen is doing and what a Katy Perry is doing, isn't that fundamentally different in terms of making music? Like what separates them in terms of how they're received in pop culture? I suppose that a big part of it is how closely these artists hew to some of the established formula of pop music. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Charlie and I, this is this is what we do, love to do is try and detect those. What like what what are the harmonic trends in popular music? What are the formal trends like how, how you structure a song? What are the melodic and lyrical trends in popular music? Uh, you know, there's there's no science to creating a number one hit, but I would say that it has to both uh, express the, the 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 trends and the and the formula of pop music of the moment, and throw something in there that's new and different. That's a that's a curveball that is out of the ordinary. And when you get that perfect alchemy of the familiar and the new then your song might shoot up to the top of the charts. And I feel like with certain artists, that balance goes might go one, one, one way or the other, and, and it becomes lopsided. And, and something I, I love about maybe some more experimental artists like Charlie is that they just laden their songs with so much newness and so much weirdness and so, so many uh, unexpected musical devices that they just like kind of tip they become top heavy and they tip over and they just like fall to fall off the charts entirely So, but that's a deliberate choice, of course. I don't think she's trying to 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 always get a number one hit, and that's why it's so fun for us to listen to. And sorry, last thing I want to say about this is that eventually, you know, we might hear those things seeping into the top of the charts, but that that's right. all. That's usually like a belated process. That maybe maybe that'll happen gradually. I think it's worth also noting mm. all of the extra musical devices that are happening simultaneously. Like certainly media saturation is important, right? If we go back to the early 2010s, this is just when Instagram is becoming, starting to become the dominant form of connection between artists and their fandoms. And so those who are succeeding in finding ways of both mass media saturation, but also developing one-on-one -on -one direct relationships and becoming their own sort of media brands, uh, that has a lot to do with who's going to succeed over the next many years. We have to remember that, you know, someone like Justin Bieber comes from the world of YouTube that became sort of a dominant cultural force. Like many of the pop stars that are emerging out of this era are coming from these other spaces. And so the amount that you are able to become your own media brand certainly determines the uh, success of where you're going to go as a pop star. Yeah, and, and this p a notion of a cult of personality, I mean, I feel like sometimes what some these the notion of sort of like how do you develop like a huge sort of fandom around like your brand or your personality like there's a lot of as you were getting at there's a lot of extra musical stuff that has to happen in that regard in order i think to be one of these sort of like humongous stadium trotting pop artists that is 
completely unrelated to like whether you actually even are making the quote unquote like best or most efficient pop music at a given moment. So Charlie makes this debut album that as we were sort of talking about sort of exists in this alternative lane is a huge critical success and it was interesting when I was listening to it recently because you can hear some of the sort of things that make Charlie's music special in this album, her sort of ability to amalgamate influences, her just knack for like a very sticky pop hook. But the music is quite different than like what we sort of come to know about her. It's a little bit maudlin. Hmm. Uh, it's very personal. It's not party oriented. And one thing that I think comes into play a lot in Charlie's later work is her making music for partying is a big thing for Charlie. 100%. A lot of her biggest hits are sort of maximally meant to sort of like deliver the rush of like a moment in the club where you are just like losing control and in a group of people. And I feel like that's a huge element of Charlie's music moving forward. I don't feel like I get a lot of that on True Romance, but where I do get a lot of that is on a song that doesn't sound very much like anything on True Romance, but becomes her first hit as a feature that she writes and gives away to this Swedish pop duo icon of pop called I Love It. guys listen to I love it do you hear some of the stuff we're talking about in in terms of like what makes Charlie a unique pop artist yeah absolutely I mean you could say it's just sort of tracking with the trends of that moment right it feels like this is a song that could have been done by the black eyed peas that it's this is like <laughs> this is pure party music but it's doing a similar thing that boom clap does it's taking a seemingly frivolous phrase and turning it into <laughs> something that everybody can pump their fist to and dance along to and scream along with. I don't mm. care. I mm. love it. Right? <laughs> like, it's a perfect little pop nugget. It feels like anybody just happened to say it into the breeze, but we all resonate with it. And she's going to take this idea of getting these little memorable hooks that sort of are on the edge of meaning, but mm. are all about enthusiasm and party music she's going to take that and just like to the nth degree later on in her career yeah it just makes me think of uh something that charlie discussed on our podcast when we briefly discussed this song i, I guess like six years ago or something and i always think about it when I listen to this song which is that there's this line in it where they sing i crashed my car into the bridge Which is a great line and captures some of that feeling of like justness and freedom, just th like no F's given. I know I can curse, but I, I just can't. I, you can I'm, curse. Not, I'm not prepared professor. to do it yet. <laughs> no, no fucks giving recklessness. Sorry, I'll say it for you. Thank is you. definitely a key ingredient in some of Charlie's best vroom, vroom. music. That, that energy of sort of recklessness, I feel like, is a really important thing. And yet, um, it's also a weird phrase because it's like, 
what does that mean? You, you crash into the bridge. Like a bridge is something you go over. So <laughs> it's like, what? It, how did that work exactly? Did it crash into the side of the bridge, into like the, the suspension mechanism of the bridge? It, it might be an instance which occurs a lot in popular music where this song co-written by Swedish musicians just has like a weird wrinkle in the Eng- in the English language that doesn't totally uh, c- correspond to like an English language idiom, but still works because ultimately it's like no one cares. In fact, maybe the recklessness of that phrase being a little slightly inscrutable corresponds to the recklessness that the song is trying to communicate. So mm-hmm. I just love I, every time I hear that, I'm like crashed into the bridge. Like I can't con con. I don't know what your mental image of that is exactly. But for me, it's like, I don't know what that what that is. In my mind, she drives. She's driving off the bridge like she's crashing through. I know it's not what she's saying, but she's crashing through the side barrier. And her and the Iconopop girls just having the time of their life screaming this song are just diving headfirst into a river in their car. That's what I picture. <laughs> That's which is a great image. It's, then it should be I drove my car off of the bridge and that. <laughs> That would... But that wouldn't be melodic math. Charlie is a very uh, astute student of Max Martin and melodic math. And as we know, I think has been discussed on your podcast, has been discussed on my podcast. What you actually say does not need yes. to make a lick of sense as long as the energy of the and the, and the melody are correct. Precisely. And now that I've become now that I've become who I really are comes yeah. to mind from the Ariana yeah. Grande song. <laughs> Nate, Nate and I have debated that endlessly. We we can't get into it right now, but I I think it's worth pointing out that this this lyric in the Iconopop song crashing into the bridge does begin an obsession with car culture. Charlie mm. loves using the metaphor of fast speeding cars. We're going to hear it constantly throughout her career. And it's maybe mm. it's one of those lyrical idioms that helps us feel the energy is high the stakes are high and immediately it's just like vroom we're taking off let's ride let's ride Well, it's like the rush of a of a, of just an, a night out with no abandon, mm. and I think she is able to capture that energy in a lot of her music. Another of my favorite lyrics from the song is, "You're from the '70s, but I'm a '90s bitch." I want to know who she's hanging out with. Like, you're from the 70s. Like, is she hanging out? Is it is her friend, like, a few generations old? Like, who is she talking to here? Maybe they're in a club and there's creepy older guys there uh, that are trying to hit on them. And they're kind of going, like, excuse me. Like, you can never. Like, I, you know, you're from the 70s. I'm a 90s bitch. <laughs> that was a genius line to hit in 2013. Because everybody who considers themselves a 90s bitch was, were the people that were in the club screaming, I love it. Yeah. So there was something very sort of, like, unifying Playing as someone audience. who is not technically a 90s bitch, but close enough. 
1987. I came of age in the 90s. There was something extremely cathartic about getting to scream the line, I'm a 90s bitch in the club. <laughs> that was that was one of the genius turns of phrases she came up with in that song. And I think the other thing that sort of sticks out to me about that song in terms of what we were talking about earlier about the push and pull between her sort of like going down the middle pop instincts and sort of being just outside is the sound of pop at that moment was so kind of just like this very sort of clear cut EDM big 10 mm. dance yep. music. That was like what were the hits of that moment where it's 125 BPMs, big drop, sort of studio precision in terms of like how these songs were made. Like they were almost like you felt like each song was working off of the same template. Like whether you're talking about We Found Love. All of the big Swedish house mafia songs or all of the David Guetta songs or all the songs that were huge at that moment. But I love it actually sounds somewhat unique because of those big guitar, distorted guitars that go over it that add an element of rock hmm. into the mix. And I think we often associate the idea of rock music with recklessness, with partying, mm. not sort of like in this sort of Molly, like I'm at Coachella <laughs> taking Molly vibe, but in more of like as actually like a 70s vibe. Maybe that's mm. another reason to bring in. The that's 70s. fun. I dig it. Another thing that is that comes across, and I love it, that I think is a motif Charlie returns to quite often, is these shouted choruses, multi-tracked shouted choruses mm, that kind of yeah. make her sound like the high priestess of the party. <laughs> like she's leading a chant. She's leading an army of sort of people that are like pursuing this rush. And I bring that up both because I think that's like a recurring theme in her own oeuvre. And I also think that it's something that comes up that we can identify in songs that she writes for other artists. So Charlie has this kind of breakthrough moment on this song that isn't her own and is very divorced in sound from this, from her debut album. And I think that's always been an interesting thing with Charlie is that she's also someone that writes a lot of songs for other artists. And I think oftentimes gives away some of her more sort of like basic hmm. pop songs to artists that she potentially deems to be more basic than <laughs> what she actually wants to do. I mean, not to be not to be reductive. I love all these artists, but she's she writes um, around this time the song "Same Old Love" for Selena Gomez. You will never convince me that that is not Charlie's vocal on that hook, and they just kept it in there. Sorry, but what I want to ask you guys about a song like "Same Old Love" is. What do you hear of Charlie and what do you hear about like perhaps why those that's a song she might give away or feel like it's not a song she should be singing herself? It's always been hard for I me. I mean, to... go ahead, Nate. Oh, Charlie. You got I mean, me. I'm always ready to defer to you because you share a first name with the the artist <laughs> that we're discussing. But let me, I'll just say this quickly. Actually, we've been, I've been joking about profanity, but the, but this is one of the things that stands out to me about the song and, and really like made me clutch my pearls when I first heard it was... <laughs> Selena Gomez cursing on a release is like pretty shocking. Is at, at that yeah. moment at yeah. least. Disney star, Disney princess, and exactly, and and seemed like this very deliberate move to change her image, change her brand, and so it was like a really 
surprising, but also probably a very savvy mood to channel some of that Charlie XCX angstiness and recklessness and drop an S-bomb in a song. And it paid off. I think she established herself as, 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 as you said, not just a Disney princess, but like a full, fully fledged pop artist. On the production side, though, what we're hearing is a safe song. It's mm. actually mm. structured basically as a blues. The underlying bass is a really cheaply sampled upright acoustic bass. Probably <laughs> is the default sound to either GarageBand or Logic. Like it's it's a really cheap sound. I think intentionally. <laughs> like they're 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 playing with the idea here. They're not, they're not yeah. being um, they're not being <laughs> negligent here. But but that it's sort of like it's supposed to sound vintagey. I think that's the vibe. I, they yeah. want it to sound like you're like putting a record on the record player and hitting play. And it and it goes from the one to the four and kind of feels like it's moving through a, a blues sort of sound. So it, it does feel like a throwback much more than uh, something looking forward. And in that way, it does not feel like a Charlie XCX song to me. It makes sense that she would give it away. Mm. It's also slow moving, interestingly. Like, I feel like Charlie XCX's songs, hmm. even when they're more uh, mid-tempo, like a boom clap, there's always like a propulsion to it. There's something languid about that song that it's hard to imagine Charlie's actually performing herself. Which she's not one to do long, drawn-out melisma and vowels, right? Like, even in boom hmm. claps, no. like... You know, the beat goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Like, she's she's always <laughs> pushing forward even if the tempo is slow. So, yeah. So, Same Old Love illustrates an interesting dichot- continuing dichotomy, I guess, in Charlie's career. Because in the same era where she's having this hit with Selena Gomez, she also releases her second album, Sucker, at the end of 2014. Which, in many ways, is indebted very much to the sounds of I Love It. It sounds like she wanted to repeat that formula and give herself I Love It style hits. Mm. Sucker is very much in that vein of sort of like where rock and electronic dance music meet. And it's also very much indebted to punk music. That's kind of putting it on the forefront of a word we're using a lot these days, which is the notion of pop punk. I mean, Sucker gives me the Ramones in some places, actually. Right away from Holloway, I said, Mom, this isn't a holiday. Listen up, I ain't coming back till I can fill the shack up with all gold blacks. Lock it on the park with the baseball bat When I'm driving on the wrong side of the road I feel like Jay And of course, if we're talking about Charlie as a trendsetter, all we do is talk about pop punk right now, thanks to Olivia Rodrigo. Mm-hmm. But more to my point here, these songs really remind me a lot of I Love It, and I think in some ways are of equal quality. I mean, I have this happens to be my favorite Charlie XCX full length, and when I listen to songs like Break the Rules, for instance, I hear very much the same formula going on as I Love It. And same goes for a song like Famous. They have that I love it energy and aesthetics that 
shouted, sort of like, I'm the party leader. There's big guitars on it, but they're also sort of like mechanical electronic production. So I've always found this album sort of interesting in the sense that she was kind of repeating the formula of I love it and bringing that into her own material, into her own world. These songs seem to exist in the same sonic universe as that song. And yet this album becomes yet like another sort of critical darling that gets almost no attention outside of Boom Clap, which I don't even kind of count as sucker canon because it first appeared on the Fault in Our Stars soundtrack and I feel like got kind of shoehorned in, doesn't really sound like the rest of the album. But I'm just intrigued by the notion that like she made this album of songs that nod at her biggest hit and yet when she's on her own she can't kind of get there with these songs I find that just to be an interesting dichotomy in her career but at the same time she's having a huge hit on a song that again sounds nothing like the music on her own album of this era and it's on this Iggy Azalea hit Fancy so What's the sound of Fancy? How is it different from the song she's making on Sucker? And how does it again help us understand like the difference between Charlie XCX features, which seem to be hits, and Charlie XCX's own songs, which sort of seem to, regardless of how similar they are to her featured songs, or as down the middle they might seem at some points to her featured songs, or as, uh, as of good, if not better quality than some of her featured songs, kind of continue to exist more in this culty pop lane that's the providence of critics and people in the know and don't really cross over well fancy is one of the most successful minimalist pop songs of the last decade it's basically just a bass line bum 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 right that's it and then it repeats mm-hmm. with a small variation and it mm-hmm. just does that all the way through so what charlie xcx demonstrates is her talent of maintaining our interest, even under a very simple looped progression, by giving us a hook that we just can't let go of. She is a master Mm -hmm. of building hooks. One that, in this context, feels almost a bit dissonant. Yeah. How so? Well, she sings... I'll allow the musicologist to jump in and look at the actual note values, but... but, (laughs) It has what you think is going to be that giant chorus of, like, a thousand Charlie XEXs. Like, the chorus never actually totally pops off because the production doesn't really change. You just get this, I'm so fancy. I already know. Like, I think that there is a contrast between what you expect in the chorus and what she actually delivers. And that gap in expectation is really rewarding. I think one of the one of the tensions is is the fact that the song is in a minor key. It's like very minor. It's very dark. That yeah. that minimalist bass line that Charlie was talking about is like the third note, the second note, and the root note of C minor. Bum bum bum. I don't know if I'm in the right key, but it's bum bum <laughs> bum. So it's like very minor. You hear that's like bum bum bum. You're like, yeah, that's a dark minor funky little. DJ Mustard rip off bass line. Yeah. And uh, 
I was going to say it, but I'm glad you took it from me. And then we have the most ironic line, perhaps in all of music history. First things first, I'm the realist. Um, and then finally, we, we get to... Uh, wow, I really stepped in that one. The wow. Charlie XCX's melody, the hook, which, first of all, starts on a weird note because we're in the key of C minor. Bum, bum, bum. And the first note is... Da, which, which is like the minor seventh of the scale so that's mm-hmm. a very kind of dissonant note to hear right off the bat it's a like stable anyway yeah exactly a little unstable and then she follows that up with this line that goes da 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 so fancy. oh it's a major which, scale exactly so it's like she's she's outlining this melody that's that's building off the relative major of C minor, E flat major. And if we heard that in isolation, we would be like, wow, that's like a nice, happy, like positive, springy melody. Da 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 it actually sounds like singing it in isolation, it almost sounds like something from like Vivaldi or something. It's like just like I was waiting for the classical music reference to come in. But then when you put it over this dark minor bass line, there's like this weird disjunction almost and it's and it's it gives it like the this little propulsive edge that makes it so hooky and listenable because you've got this major key melody over this dark minor key bass line. And it's like, there's a little bit of fire there. There's a little bit of friction that draws you into the song. It's a bit of what we're going to get in her later hyperpop moments, which is like, when we think about hyperpop, it doesn't necessarily mean maximalist all the sounds all the time. I think rather it's taking the distilled elements of the things that are most pop and clashing some of them which don't fit together in a way where mm. it makes us a bit uncomfortable. And I think that we're getting exactly that here on Fancy. We're getting DJ Mustard style, minor, heavy bass line with like fun, upbeat, super positive melody. And they're not supposed to go together, but they're both coming from the exact same language. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I one of the things that I also picked up about it that I think is sort of part of Charlie's magic and weird in the context of talking about Iggy Azalea is her sort of fluency as a ninth quote unquote 90s bitch with utilizing hip hop tropes like the notion of hmm. how fun it is like the the lyric I'm so fancy you already know is like a very rapperish kind of thing to Oysters, say yeah. I think that's a very that's a playful use of a hip hop idiom. The other thing that I sort of that connected it to me to some of her past hits and most notably I love it is this rock star abandon energy on the bridge. Smash the hotel, let's get drunk on the mini bar, you know, <laughs> that kind of vibe is something that she loves to play with both like hip hop hmm. tropes in her music and also with like 70s rock star kind yeah. of like uh, reckless, Cliches, I don't know, recklessness yeah. in terms of just like and the energy that invokes in a party setting. These are two huge hmm tenants of party culture 70s rock starism and hip-hop are like kind of like two of the cornerstones of modern american party culture (laughs) and i think she's very playfully utilizes all of that
in terms of all the songs we've discussed, how would you describe Charlie XCX's like sort of on song persona? Like what is her what is her persona like on these records? I always find her to feel quite distant, ironic, definitely uh-huh. at the center of the party, but not dancing with her eyes closed with total abandon, but rather maybe mimicking and sort of mocking a little bit the way in which others might be dancing, but not in a mean way, just kind of like a very self-conscious. I don't feel like I get to know her. There's always some remove. That's interesting when you talk about sort of the pop alt pop context, because it's both like someone who understands what's central, but also still feels always kind of approaches it from as an outsider or with like a wink and a nod or a tongue in cheek. In well, it, it, it goes back to your question about like why some people become super pop stars and others don't. Uh, I'm not one to be particularly interested <laughs> in the private lives of pop stars. It's just like it's the exact opposite of why we make Switched On Pop. Nonetheless, sure. you know, we just by existing in capitalism absorb those media narratives. They get to us. I yeah, don't know anything about Charlie XCX. I know nothing about her. Me neither. <laughs> and I think that, and, I, and, I, and you know, it, to a certain degree, I think it's perhaps the best kind of pop stardom, which is that like people aren't in your stuff, uh, mm-hmm. but it also limiting the potential intimacy with your audience also, I think, constrains the potential size of your audience. Mm-hmm. She's not like a celebrity figure in that sense. No, it's why, but it's also like she can safely hide behind party music. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know this, there are DJs with enormous careers, huge followings. They're making it, and they're not a household name, but they're loving making music. Right. And I feel like she's more hmm. connected right. to that part of party culture and club culture than she is. Like, I want to be the next Adele. She's like, they couldn't, you know, she's <laughs> couldn't be further from uh, that part of pop music. You know, I I love this point because you know a subject that comes up a lot on this podcast is sort of the growing imperative of authenticity in our pop stars. Whether you're talking about Olivia, Billy, like we want to know something about their lives. Taylor, it's like the interaction between their celebrity persona and how they represent that. Ariana, how they represent that in their music is like critical to the formula of pop megastardom. And Charlie, like she just doesn't give you that. In a way, her project is about celebrating artifice. And yet, when I think. Another part of her persona is that she's like a genuine fan of pop music. And 100%. One of the things I always think of when I think of her is the cover that she did. I, it must have been on, um, I think the BBC does this, right? Where they have artists cover other artists' songs. And she covered Taylor Swift's Shake It Off. But Whoa. she performed it as a like grungy punk song. Cool. And it is so much fun so brilliant like beautifully executed in the musical arrangement and her performance is just like lays it leaves it all on the floor and it's it's like just such a love letter to to taylor swift even as it's totally reinterpreting her music Like she's someone who to me is is always just like 
she's like a stan herself, which I think is really, really but cool. The fandom is so important to me. I'll never forget reading the liner notes of Sucker, and she dedicated the album to Britney. And she said, I wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for Britney. And hmm. I always thought that was just wow. a fascinating connection to make for someone that seems like such a sort of outsider in some ways to pop to the ultimate pop insider. But she has ultimate reverence for insider. Like she, it's weird because in some ways she feels like she's be, she's she can be kind of ironic and tongue in cheek hmm. and sort of like at a remove from pop. And yet at the same time, she clearly has the utmost respect for centrist pop stars like Taylor Swift with whom she went on tour right. and performed Shake It Off with every single night of that tour. <laughs> and I went to that tour and watched that happen in real time. Wow. So I always found that fascinating, her reverence for it. And I do want to loop back to Britney in a second when we get to the hyper pop thing, because I do think there is a DNA element there that is related to Britney. But uh, last question on this era, which is we touched a little bit on Boom Clap, but Boom Clap becomes her only real traditional solo pop hit in America. Um, mm -hmm. And Charlie, you talked a little bit about what's going on on Boom Clap, but maybe we could just take one minute on Boom Clap here. And how does Boom Clap sort of stand out uh, especially knowing what comes next in the hyperpop era as a Charlie XCX song. Like, is there a reason that that's the only Charlie XCX, sort of traditional Charlie XCX hit? Well, I think it leans into what you were saying earlier, which is that she's always riding this line of doing some wild experimental stuff and then making things that are just like straight ahead, this is for the Hot 100. And I feel like just the aesthetics of what she's doing there, this song is harmonically safer Mm. It is melodically safer. It doesn't mm. have any of the dissonance that you're going to hear in Fancy, which is trying to, you know, obviously be like a hip hop crossover, pop crossover thing. It's a song that could pretty safely play on adult contemporary as well as top 40. Uh, it really, in many ways, doesn't actually fit at all what I come to know of her or actually, actually really why I love her music. It, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's safe down the no. middle. It could play at a club at five o'clock in the afternoon before the party really starts to happen. <laughs> Your picture perfect blue, someday the moon starts shining as your bones illuminate. First kiss just like a drug under your influence. It's hit me over you, the magic in my veins. This must be love. Feels more directly in conversation with the pop music of that moment than most of her music usually does to me. Like another hit of that year was Chandelier by Sia. Mm. And I feel like there's a definite sort of like connection between Boom Clap and Chandelier and other sort of mid-tempo, yeah. like with mid-tempo songs with a huge shouted chorus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, that like is more so that I find more so than I do in most of her other solo hmm. material, either before or after it. So coming out of Boom Clap, we enter a phase with Charlie that I feel like has kind of defined the last, let's say, five years of her career. After sort of moving from like the Ariel Reichshad uh, indie pop pop vibe of her first record, mm -hmm. and then the sort of like pop punk before the new pop punk, the, the presaging pop punk record sucker mm -hmm. uh, that also felt really out of step with sort of like what the set, the crystalline sound of pop at mm -hmm. that moment in 2014 or 2015, uh, Charlie enters like what I think feels like the kind of music that most people now associate with Charlie XCX. Mm. And it begins in a collaboration with a couple of artists 
A.G. Cook and Sophie in particular, who are largely coded in a genre called, which I think a lot of us might find irritating as a catch-all, but I think it's important for us to lay it out, called Hyperpop. Charlie started to lay out for us what Hyperpop is, but just for a second, can we just give us, give the audience a sense of like, what defines Hyperpop? And are there songs by Sophie or A.G. Cook that we could, or anybody in the PC music universe that we could point to that like, sort of presage what Charlie is going to do in this field. Hyperpop is, and particularly PCU music, is taking the grammar of popular music, getting rid of all the unnecessary mm-hmm. bits, taking the parts and distilling them down to their, their most essence and then and, and, and then doing them in bold font at, at 150 font size. And <laughs> potentially to expand the metaphor, it's like, Big, bold comic sans in the worst Microsoft paint pink that you can find, <laughs> taking the tools that are really sort of available to everybody and showing off what they really are, which is not mm. necessarily even a commentary on like they're good or bad. It's just like, look at what you can do with these sounds. A song that comes to mind for me is Sophie's Lemonade. Yeah, that's a great example because it's like if if we were to create a matrix of sounds that you would hear in a hyper pop track, I would say it would be heavily synthesized with programmed drums, voices that are have processed and often raised uh, up uh, maybe an octave or more, and generally just an overall very synthetic, almost computerized texture. If I think a lot of pop music is trying to take synthesized sounds and make them sound more organic or natural, hyperpop is trying to lean into the artificiality of computer generated sounds. Candy boys, candy boys. And it does so by leaving a lot of spaciousness so that you really hear them. Like when you expect a drop to happen, you don't get the drop. Instead, you just get more of the overwhelming synth sound. Oftentimes, there's actually not a lot of instruments and a lot of tracks happening at any one moment. It's all about the texture of the exact thing that you're hearing that, uh, yeah, as Nate put it, it's the most digital, the most artificial version of the thing. And it just shows exactly how pop is made those are those are the tools mm. and it shows the the full the full vocabulary that they they offer wasn't one of the major kind of like controversies around pop uh, hyper pop or like one of the questions that still exists around it is it like is it being sort of ironic or is it sort of like being is it like is it meant to be taken at face value or is it kind of like supposed to exist as like a commentary on pop music in a I've sense I've spoken with AG Cook about this specifically uh he's the founder of the label PC Music and no, this is it's 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 supposed to be art. It's not supposed it's mm-hmm. not coming from a cynical like ironic remove. It's coming from mm-hmm. a look at these things that pop music do. Isn't this really interesting? Check out the kind of things that we can do with it when we 
take these parts of the grammar and really isolate and focus on them. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's like it's it's more of a celebration in a sense of pure popness without sort of any need as Nate was getting at of sort of like placing the artifice of trying to like make it more human. It's actually just like celebrating the it's like a celebration of artificial of the artificiality of pop hmm. or what can be artificial in pop. There's certain certainly commentary in there as well. I mean, probably the most moving profound song that i heard in the last five years or so is sophie's face shopping my face is the front of shop which uses a lot of very challenging timbres from FM and wavetable synthesizers to demonstrate the sort of fragmented nature of capitalism and identity uh, and commentary on I think, trans identity as well. There's so much built into this one song it makes you lean in and listen more closely. The sounds are challenging, but they're so clearly coming from the world of pop. And thus it suggests that maybe there's things to criticize, but also that the language of pop has so much to offer. It has so many ways of revealing who we are as individuals, who we are as a society, and you can hear that Hmm. in a single song. So Charlie is kind of the first sort of pre-established pop star to really dabble in this aesthetic. So when we listen to one of her first hyper-pop songs, the collaboration with Sophie Vroom Vroom, Mm -hmm. which I think to many Charlie fans might be her signature song. What is bringing an artist like Charlie into that sort of hyper pop sphere bring to it that's different than what's happening on a song like Lemonade without having a sort of established pop presence on it like Charlie's? I mean, I think it's 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 the collision of so many of the things that we were identifying as as Charlie's trademarks as a songwriter, uh, her ability to create these evocative and universal images through a single line or phrase, her ability to generate this sense of recklessness and sort of collective uh, liberation and and freedom and the kind of vocal mannerisms she has that just give you this kind of image of this like in insouciant queen queen bee figure <laughs> so let's ride bitches know they can't catch me cute sexy in my ride sporty those slugs know they can't catch me And so when that, when all those meet the musical 
extreme language of hyperpop. I think there's like a bit of like tempering that happens actually. And there's this just plain pop sensibility that comes in and like kind of tempers the edges, the hard edges of some of the the hyperpop sound a little bit. Yeah, if you listen to the the PC Music Presents early mixtapes they did, they feel like a curation of some pretty difficult art music. There's some fun stuff on there. I enjoy listening to it. But it's like, it's pretty chaotic. It puts you in a strange place. And I remember when I heard the first collaborations <laughs> that she did with A.G. Cook, and I was like, oh, so now they're doing this thing that like feels like everybody can listen to this, and like maybe I can even put it on with my parents in the car, and they're not going to like be like, what? wait, what's going on? Like, what is this really heavy, more challenging music? <laughs> I'd love music? to see your parents' reaction to Vroom Vroom. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Vroom Vroom is still a pretty wild-sounding yeah, song. You can turn it on low. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I also really understand Charlie XX participating in the PC music world because she is a working songwriter. She understands the value of collaboration. And what I know about the sort of larger circle around PC music is that it is a immensely collaborative community. Mm. And she found not just a scene in the beginning of the hyperpop movement with artists like A.G. Cook and Sophie, but she found really beautiful collaborators. I think intimate relationships, people that were sincerely interested and engaged in questioning where popular music can go and to do it it, as a collective creative labor that feels very fitting to Charlie XCX. Yeah. And you know, not just the collaboration that clearly was so fruitful between her, Sophie, AJ, all the other PC music people, but also an absolute imperative tenant of this era of Charlie X's career is this elevation of other alternative pop female and non-binary queer presences on the series of EPs uh, mixtapes and albums. I mean, all of these Charlie PC music collab albums are just loaded to the brim with features of other alternative pop stars like Carolyn Polachek. Of course, Carly Rae Jepsen. people that have existed in this lane with her and I feel that there's this real uh, camaraderie and sort of sense she has almost as a leader as their leader as we're getting at we talked about her as a leader of the party but I also think she sees herself as sort of like a curator of this sort of world of alternative pop artists she's really creating this entire sonic universe where yes maybe she's the central figure in it but it's actually sort of like her as ringleader in this entire like alt pop universe that she creates with PC music it's all a rather generous act on her part and a, just a rather beautiful celebration of like what a unifying force pop music can be, which I think is such a central aspect of Charlie's artistry and perspective on the genre. And then in terms of just talking about like nailing down the aesthetics of what it means to bring like a pop presence like Charlie into the world of this esoteric hyper pop movement is that we know Charlie's a big 90s girl and like it starts to almost sound like the tasteless 90s one hit wonder tracks of the 90s, like the dance songs like Barbie Girl and stuff like that <laughs> totally. to me. Like if you listen to a song like Fembot off of pop 2 you can very much hear the aqua influence there the way you look at me you make me control it's 
Daba Dee Daba Die or The Real McCoy or the other song that really came to mind to me listening to some of these hyperpop songs is Shares Believe for some reason because mm-hmm. it's another song that sort of celebrates technology and mm-hmm. artifice. Do you believe? Other thing that I wanted to make sure I pointed out to you guys, just to bring back the Britney thing, is Charlie. You should quickly play, quickly play a snippet of the Britney song "How I Roll." From her 2011 album Femme Fatale and I think if we're talking about digital manipulation of vocals and sort of like taking that to the utter extreme Britney's you know sound especially in the latter period was a producer's playground in terms of doing that in the studio oh no 100% even just That's the uncanny. opening glitchiness wow. at the beginning feels like I, I, can't, I imagine that Sophie must have been listening to this. It feels very influential. 100%. So she has this uh, sort of reinvention of her sound on this Room Room EP with Sophie. And then we get a series of sort of albums and mixtapes, which again is sort of interesting because if we're talking about like hyperpop sort of like being a both like a deconstruction and a sort of... I don't know, distillation of pop. Charlie's also kind of reinventing the notion of the album era for a pop star as something that isn't tied to like one record that you spend years and years developing a certain aesthetic for and following that sort of set of 12 songs through for multiple years, whatever that sort of vibe is. These are sort of just like an ongoing flow of mixtapes and albums all within the same aesthetic universe that represent an era that's divorced from the idea of like an LP as like the sort of pinnacle of artistry and pop which I thought was just an interesting parallel like she's both sort of like musically deconstructing some aspects of pop or distilling them and also similarly doing so with the way that she's releasing it but I did notice as the hyperpop era dragged on there is more warmth that comes into it and I think you can hear uh in contrast to a song like Vroom Vroom a song like Gone with Christine and the Queens actually does feel a like it's dealing with like lyrical content about sort of anxiety and about that it's more personal and the vocals in certain places feel like a little less processed I have to go I'm so And I wonder if you guys hear sort of like an evolution as the as the hyperpop era goes on, maybe talking about the song Gone that sort of like evolves from her initial Sophie collaboration through some of her later work with A.G. Cook. I think it highlights how the folks around the PC Music Collective recognize both the importance of using sound as a way of guiding our expectations around what pop can and can't be while leaning deeper into songs and song form and recognizing that there is a power within expected song forms.
she certainly will twist and bend what can be a song. Her record that she put out during the pandemic, especially, the, mm. it's sort of songiness. But this is a this is a complete, total beautiful song with my absolute favorite breakdown, sort of bridge mm. instrumental that I've maybe ever heard in a pop song outside of Nine Inch Nails' Piggy. thing kind of reveals itself in the middle for what it really is like yeah this is a fun song but really this is an experimentation in sound mm. all right so to bring us in for a bit of a landing here uh just this past september charlie for the first time in the last five years moved out of sort of this hyperpop movement in her latest single good ones it's produced by oscar holter who is a max martin affiliate who produced blinding lights by the weekend mm. and definitely feels like her first sort of step outside of that into something new I'm curious what you hear in terms of like the evolution of like where Charlie might be going next. I find it really difficult to guess at where she's going because this falls in line with her as a working songwriter and mm -hmm. tracking what's happening in pop. I don't know if she's exiting her relationships to the PC music world or if this is a one-off single because if she's one of those artists, as you were saying, if you go to her Spotify page and you look at her releases and you go to EPs and singles, the number of singles she's released is just almost infinitely long. You have to scroll forever. <laughs> right. And so it's really hard to know with one data point which direction she might be going in. This is a straight-ahead pop song, uh, hmm. and it's a really good one, and it immediately has remixes associated with it. And it's a short song, like a lot of uh, contemporary pop songs. Eminently playbackable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. it, it, this doesn't feel like a mixtape experimentation. This feels like, yeah, I want this to be heard on the radio. And she's equally capable of doing both things. Yeah, I agree. I think it sounds like she's potentially attempting maybe to pivot back a little bit towards something that might be more mass audience friendly. And I think that sort of summarizes a lot of the push and pull that we've been talking about in her career between being sort of like both the ultimate student of pop and then also sort of like one of its primary agitators. And uh, I think that sort of has defined Charlie's career and what's is part of what makes her so unique in the pop ecosystem. It's interesting that she's doing it at this moment, though, because hyperpop is having a huge moment. And the fact that she's sort of maybe leaning away from it suggests that Maybe she's leaning into something that we aren't quite even hearing yet. Maybe maybe we need to do a closer listen of good ones, and especially what she's going to do next, and maybe that's the thing that's going to happen in five years. I also thought about, um, this is like totally my my weird brain functioning, but saying I always let the good ones go, which is the hook of it, could mm. equally apply to some of her hit giving away. I was wondering <laughs> if maybe it's an apology of sorts. Like, Ooh, I like that. You know, in the past, I've let the good ones go, but this one's mine or something Dig like it. that. And in, to the extent that it does become a mainstream hit, We'll see, but I, I've always wondered if that sort of like could double as a as a as a as like a acknowledgement of that in a sense. Lay you down easy. I'm trying. 
let's talk about the Pantheon for a second. My vibe is Charlie is definitional to the niche legend tier, which can run parallel to other tiers. So I see her sort of on the border between a tier four and a niche legend mm. in the sense that in one world, she operates as someone that to like maybe mass audiences is kind of like a one or two hit wonder. Mm -hmm. Like if as a DJ, I often get to experience like what do like the most sort of like basic elements of pop consuming culture realize about us an artist like what do they know what what stands out to them and i think to many people charlie xcx might be the girl that's saying i love it she might be the girl that's saying fancy she might be the girl that's saying saying boom clap and she's really not much else to many people right. in pop um and mm. I think that's borne out actually by her appearance on Taylor Swift's tour. If you go kind of compare her set lists for her own shows to the set list she does on that tour, it is radically different and it's fascinating. On the tour, she's only doing I Love It, Boom Clap, Fancy, The Hook of Fancy, uh, you know, all of like her most sort of like mainstreamy hits. And then when she performs on her own, she just did a couple of shows in New York and LA where she literally only performed her latest album, How I'm Feeling Now, and Vroom Vroom. And so it's almost like she's existing in these two completely separate worlds where I feel like she's perceived as two different things. In one world, she is one of the most influential, exciting, niche pop stars who is known for all of this like extremely exciting music and then in this other world she's seen as kind of like a one or two hit wonder and i think that's mm. a really interesting dichotomy in her career that's how i see it. in your categorization in the pop pantheon i think that there are two categories that most push the sound of popular music obviously tier one icons they radically right. change the direction of pop music you can go through all the other tiers and you have to get all the way to this special category of niche legends and i think mm -hmm. that those are also the people who radically push the sound of popular music you just might not know their name but they're the people that all the mm. songwriters producers and artists are studying and the people that we're going to look back on 10 years mm -hmm. in the future and we're going to say wow that person was really ahead of their time and everything I'm listening to now is, it's in there. A hundred percent. And my last question for you guys is before we go, is there, a lot of Charlie's songs are underrated, but is there a particular hobby horse you guys have of an underrated Charlie XCX song that we can go out on? Ooh, I have one if that's all right, Nate. Yeah, yeah, go for it. My favorite Charlie XCX song is an untitled track called Track 10 off of Pop 2. Beautiful song. All right, so let's go out on Track 10. Yeah. Charlie Harding, Nate Sloan, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. This has been so much fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Right, so that's it. Pop Pantheon Charlie XCX, a quintessential niche legend, perhaps also a tier four in a basics mind. The judgment is rendered. Thank you so, so much to Charlie Harding and Nate Sloan of Switched on Pop. God, this was a dream come true moment for me with this podcast to have them on. Thank you guys so, so much for being on. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast. Join the Discord tonight at 8 p.m. 5 Pacific. Email your questions, comments, and concerns to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Listen to the Charlie XCX episode Spotify playlist in the links in my bio. And don't forget to follow, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. 
so that we can get more people involved. And until next time, guys, have a wonderful life. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye. I'll blame it.